the business of culture, the culture of business, media and entertainment, policy and politics, creatives, iconoclasts. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad, and we are live at the University of Richmond with U.S. Secretary of Transportation, Pete Buttigieg. It is obviously head-spinning to find yourself on a stage competing for the presidency with somebody you were writing an essay about when you were in high school, which, let's face it, wasn't that long ago. It is an example of what life can throw at you and also what's possible in this country and in his life. Indeed, he has been Scholar Pete, Polyglot Pete, Naval Officer Pete, McKinsey Consultant Pete, two-time Mayor Pete, Iowa Caucus-winning presidential candidate Pete, Daddy Pete. As far as resumes go, Pete Buttigieg is like a Pizza Hut Taco Bell KFC. <laughs> with a sake bar <laughs> that could take your order in Maltese. You know, seriously, he could. And he's only 41. So ahead, we talk planes, trains, automobiles, where the secretary's been, where he wants to go. Please do stay with us. This special taping of Full Disclosure Live was made possible by the generous support of the Robbins School of Business at the University of Richmond. The Robbins School prepares students to make an impact by providing a dynamic learning community where real-world teaching practices, scholarship, and service are at the forefront of the curriculum. More at robbins.richmond.edu. And by Salomon & Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salomon & Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence. Recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, all fine podcatchers, including and especially Apple Podcasts. The link, please subscribe and tell your friends, is FullDRadio.com. Again, FullDRadio.com. We headquarter at NPR member station Radio IQ, WVTF, Virginia's NPR news station, across the Commonwealth. Holler if you too would like us on your air. We are on all socials at handle Full D Radio. And a gentle reminder that our next live show will have Steve Inskeep of NPR, January 31st, back at the Robbins School with his new book on President Lincoln. So please do sign up. Admission is free, but tickets do fly. Joining me on stage at the Modlin Center at the University of Richmond, our first show here is U.S. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg. Please give him another round. <laughs> Mr. Secretary, as everyone here knows, I'm never short for words or adverbiage and the like, but I'm going to cut the organ music short because there's so much policy to jump into. Hmm. Legitimately, planes, trains, and automobiles. And more. All right, and more. Right now, if you were to take out your phone and put up the messages up there on your email, how many emails do you get every day from aggrieved airline passengers? I'm just curious. <laughs> you know, it's funny figure you out that. your email. I don't use email much, but there are people who guess my email address and CC me when they're writing the airline. And, you know, we, we have a system for actually getting complaints that's a little more efficient. But uh, look, it's, it's, it's one of the parts of the transportation system people feel, especially when it's not working the way it should. It's one of the reasons why passenger protection has been such a big focus since I got here. And, uh, and I'm really proud of what we've done. So uh, you, you, you could try to send me an email, but the best thing to do is to go to flightrights.gov, which is a website that we set up 
both to make sure passengers understand before you book a ticket, before you fly, or if you're flying and you have a problem, what your rights are, and have a way to let us know if an airline's not doing the right thing so we can follow up. I mean, their customer service counters are non-responsive. They have fatigue and burnout issues. It seems like the entire system is spent. And I, you know, I covered JetBlue during its IPO in 2002, and it's supposed to be the antidote to all this. A lot of them have just become legacy carriers in the wake of clearly the shock of September 11th and the pandemic and jet fuel prices being far higher than they used to be. Is this pretty much as good as it gets? Well, I think it can be a lot better, and we've made it a lot better even just over the last year. We've expanded passenger protections and rights that wouldn't have existed even a year and a half ago on basic things like uh, being able to get your meals or, or expenses or ground transportation covered if you get stuck and it's the airline's fault. When we came in, none of the top 10 airlines had enforceable commitments to do that. Uh, now just about all of them do. We're working on more rules uh, to make sure that, for example, if, if you're flying with your kids, you shouldn't have to pay extra to sit next to them. I always believed that, but, but now that I'm a parent, uh, I believe it that much more strongly. I think that, that the key is to recognize that even in a perfectly normal competitive market, things only work if there is oversight and if there are boundaries. And nothing about the airline sector is a perfectly normal competitive market. There are very few players. The trend has been toward consolidation. At the time of deregulation, it was confidently stated by those who were promoting that approach that there would be like a hundred airlines in the future. They really thought that. Obviously, things worked out differently, which makes it that much more important for us as a watchdog, as a regulator, as an entity that can back up passengers' rights to be there. And we're using those authorities in new ways. Uh, we're raising the bar in terms of penalties when airlines don't do the right thing. But also, we're willing to sit with them and work with them to make improvements. And I think that's part of why, for example, just a few days ago, we had the busiest day for passengers getting on planes in American history. Sunday after Thanksgiving, 2.9 million passengers screened by TSA. And the cancellation rate was less than one half of 1%. So I'm not saying that, that it's mission accomplished by any stretch, but we've seen improvement. We need to push to get more improvement. I, time was, I used to fly in college, and I'm 25 years removed from college graduation. I go in and out of Newark you know, to South Florida. There, seemed, there were many more airlines. What's now United Airlines was United and Continental. American Airlines was American U.S. Air, America West. I think, you know, Delta and Northwest. And they did have a plausible argument after 9-11 and, and that crisis and the jet fuel cost spike that we need to merge to survive. But some of it oftentimes, I mean, even with your dashboard or what you call it on the DOT where you see the passenger rights, everything is nickel and dimed. Every, every last perk. Forget about peanuts or a drink. I'm talking about an exit row seat. Forget about that. I'm talking about row 17D. If you want an aisle seat, you have to wait and risk it. Forget about, you know, being there with kids. I mean, unless you chain them on the DOT website, there was going to be this race to the bottom. Well, I think a couple of things are happening in terms of the patterns you're talking about, one of which makes sense up to a point, another of which is not acceptable. What makes sense up to a point is a decision to unbundle some of these uh, services or bells and whistles, right? So if some passengers would like to have a cheaper ticket. And the way you get that cheaper ticket is you don't bring a carry-on or uh, you, you don't get to pick your seat. Then they get the chance to do that instead of having everybody have this, the same product, one size fits all. Up to a point, that's for the companies to decide whether their customers will tolerate it. But there's another level that's just baseline, just the basic level of service that I don't care whether you bought a first-class ticket 
or whether you got the cheapest basic economy thing six months in advance, you should be able to expect certain things. You should be able to expect that if the airline strands you, that they're going to take care of you. You should be able to expect that you will not sit on the tarmac for a dangerously long period of time. And if you do, uh, there are incredibly stiff fines for that, which is why it happens much less than it did before the Obama administration when they put in those rules. As I've said before, I think there are things that are currently not required, like child seating not being paid for. Another example is being compensated if you get a long delay. Not, not just compensated like they'll uh, get your meal, but like compensated for the waste of your time. But they play the asterisk and the fine print in that. If it's a you know, weather or active God issue, we were done this way. My son will come and tell you about Spirit Airlines, Fort Lauderdale, and the, you know, what happened at well into two and three in the morning. And I understand you get what you buy for and you show up, but at that point at three in the morning, you weren't exactly gonna refer to a website and go try to get in line at a counter with a bunch of groggy kids, you just realize this is it. This is what the industry has become. And it's happened to JetBlue, it's happened to Southwest, it's happened to the legacy carriers, it happens whether you have a first class ticket or you're in carriage class. But that's exactly what we need to be shaping with the tools that we have, including regulation. I know some people say that any and all regulation is just an unbearable constraint on the free market economy. But regulations, first of all, safety regulations, are the reason why flying is the safest way to travel. This, by the way, in of itself is an incredible fact. You just step back and think about it, that a form of transportation involves getting into a metal tube with like a hundred other people and being sent through the sky, tens of thousands of feet above the surface of the ground at nearly the speed of sound, propelled by highly flammable liquid fuel, <laughs> which is in fact set on fire in, in jet engines, right? Is the safest way to travel. That is because of the incredibly high standard that was set and is maintained on safety. I also think that good regulation helps make sure on the passenger protection side, the consumer side, the economic side, that people have that baseline of a better experience. Uh, for example, if your flight gets canceled, I don't care if it's weather or any other reason, you are entitled to get your money back. Now we're working on how to make sure that you don't have to fight to get your money back. That's the next step. But in the meantime, if you do and you're having trouble, Call us because we have set records in terms of the toughness of the penalties that we are assessing on airlines who are not doing the right thing. And we're ready to continue to do that, to get better results for passengers. Is there part of you, especially in the past life, kind of the you know, consultant and presidential candidate party that wants to march down Pennsylvania Avenue and tell the White House to break up the airlines. I mean, we back in the day, that was a possibility. They broke up Ma Bell, and that led to competition. Or this, you know, the deregulation that started with, I think, in the late 70s and early 80s with fares. It's kind of run amok at this point, and maybe more competition's needed. For anybody keeping score at home, I, did, I don't know the chances for JetBlue and Spirit, you know, getting that merger approved, but this is an industry that really, really keeps wanting to merge. Uh, left on its own. Is that even a possibility? I'm surprised no candidate has ever broached it. Well, funny you should mention that. We are acting with the department's own authority, which has been there for decades, but hasn't really been used in the past, to get involved in the JetBlue and Spirit case because of concerns about what that merger would do to competition. And there are authorities that, that the DOT has had the whole time, but really has slept on over the years that have to do with making sure that people are protected, including in the, these contexts where we have more and more mergers. Because otherwise, you do have to ask, where, where does this end? Does it wind up like Coke and Pepsi? Uh, do we wind up with one I'm an RC Cola guy, for whatever it's worth. <laughs> well, 
that's, you want to have some choices, right? And I think that's important. And that's part of what's at stake in JetBlue spirit, which is why I felt that we needed to do something different from precedent, pick up those legal authorities and use them. Is that normally the province of the FTC or the FAA? Generally, DOJ has done it, the Department of Justice, and, they, and they're involved here too. And we're, we're working with them side by side. But in the past, it was left completely to the Department of Justice. And it turns out the authorities that our department has are overlapping. They're not identical. And that means, in my view, that, that we ought to step up. If you have tools to make a difference with, you ought to pick them up, use them to make a difference. That's what we're doing in this particular case with a broader view to concern about consolidation in airlines. By the way, it's not just airlines. You look at freight railroads. We're down to seven and really four of the largest class one freight railroads where there used to be dozens. And that can be to the disadvantage of customers, of workers, and of communities. And the Surface Transportation Board is now taking, I think it's safe to say, a more rigorous approach to the economics of the railroads than we've had in the past. And we're watching closely, to, uh, again, knowing that however concentrated an industry gets, the more concentrated it is, the more important it is to have a regulator looking over their shoulder to make sure that they do the right thing. You read my mind, trains. About three, four miles north of here is the Staples Mill train station, which is, I, I, I hear it's still the busiest train station in the South and easily the busiest train station in Virginia. I mean, that's trivia nobody would get on Jeopardy. But up until about a month ago, had I taken you to Staples Mill, Richmond, again, just north of the University of Richmond, you'd be transported to 1971 East Germany. <laughs> and I saw, no. I saw a news headline that they finally got an Amtrak spokesman to say, yeah, we finally redid the floor and it's, it's wider and everything. And you realize this is innovation, not even at the margins. People here would so eagerly jump on a higher speed rail. There's so many problems with this though. CSX, which has a Richmond tradition, has right of way. As you just hinted at that these freight companies that have merged and have excess profits, I think Berkshire Hathaway is involved in it they have thrown their weight around much more. I think CSX's CEO, as recently as 2011, says there's really no future for robust passenger travel in the United States. So how am I supposed to get my head around that? I mean, if the airports are tough like this, if I want to take a train, I'm in DC quite a bit. I know you went between New York and Boston a lot. You couldn't really truly count on the Acela and others. There was something always missing. And you've been to Japan, you've been to other countries. I hear people who toured the Pudong bullet train. Yeah. You know, why can't that dog hunt here? Well, I think it can if we invest the right way. And you know, one thing that I, I said as soon as President Biden asked me to take this job was that I was finally in, in an environment where I was at best only going to be the second biggest passenger rail believer around because uh, uh, President Biden, because he used Amtrak almost on a daily basis to get home to Delaware, understood the importance of passenger rail. And yeah, I think anybody who goes abroad very likely has an experience with what passenger rail could be, and comes back here to the US and thinks, why can't we have nice things? Um, <laughs> I was in Japan for the G7 transportation ministerial, and, and sitting as a passenger on the, the bullet train there is an incredible experience. And sitting up front, they gave me a chance to go up into the, uh, into the cabin up front where the operator is. That was a spiritual experience. <laughs> you, you, you see just how fast the world is going by. And we can and should and will have a dramatically better standard of passenger rail in the U.S. than we have today. Here's what has to happen. First, we've got to take care of what we've got. 
You mentioned 1971. It's actually been 50 years since we've made the level of investments in passenger rail that we are now making as we speak as part of President Biden's infrastructure package. Now, a lot of that, just fixing what we've got. The Baltimore and Potomac tunnels, soon to be known as the Frederick Douglass Tunnel, more than 150 years old. And we're finally fixing it. The Hudson Tunnels in New York, the finest, most up-to-date, state-of-the-art engineering technology of the Roosevelt administration. <laughs> the te Teddy Roosevelt administration. And Superstorm Sandy was 11 years ago? Yes, damaged even further by Superstorm Sandy because the salt water got it. We're finally replacing those tunnels. But it took that level of investment. Now that's just to take care of what we got. Then we gotta add on to what we have. Areas where there used to be passenger service but it hasn't existed in years. Areas where there's never been passenger service but it ought to be. We also need to make better use of, again, authorities that have been there the whole time. So you mentioned CSX, one of the freight railroads. A lot of people, especially if you've had the experience of being on a long distance Amtrak trip and being delayed an hour or two or five or 10, might think of this as a problem with Amtrak. What's the matter with Amtrak? They can't run their trains on time. More often than not, it has to do with a freight train being in the way because the rails that they run are, are owned by these class one freight railroads. Now, when the entire system was set up and modernized in the way that we now know it, part of the deal that was made, including around the creation of Amtrak, was that those freight railroads were required by law to give way to passenger travel. It takes priority by law, but it has not always taken priority in practice. So it's another example of how even with the existing rails, the existing money, the existing trains, enforcement can make a huge difference. Was it set up cynically what would eventually become Amtrak? Let's go back 50 years ago. And I'm not asking you to cast dispersions on the dead or anybody, but as I understand it, it was not built to last. It was built to kind of, you know, chug along maybe for a couple of years, get broken up, maybe private equity and other individual lines would get involved. And meanwhile, it's been stopgap now for 50 years. And you see things like Roosevelt era, you know, rust and things happening. What is that one bridge that they talk about outside in the Meadowlands that you actually have to hit sometimes with a... Yeah, the Portal North. But see, we're replacing it. So yeah, this is a swing bridge. <laughs> This is a swing but bridge. But it was a cynical, maybe so it was a cynical old. exercise, the founding of this. It was never look, created to. I can't look into the soul of whoever worked on this in the 60s and 70s, okay. but I can look at our national transportation system and say, okay, how do we do more and do better? And this is exactly what President Biden has, has challenged us to do. We're making the investments it's going to take to get good, what, what most people just consider regular speed rail, but get it to be at a higher standard. I'm not even talking about Chinese or Japanese standards. The Italians, the Moroccans, Turkish citizens enjoy a level of uh, a standard of reliability on rail service that Americans ought to have too. But also, we can begin with the funding that's in this infrastructure package. We can begin to see actual high-speed rail in the U.S. as well. Not everywhere. I'd be lying if I said that this five-year funding was enough to give us a national network, but we can start. And we are weeks away from being able to announce some of the first investments we're making with those dollars in the infrastructure package to begin to get that done. What about something like an outlier like Brightline in my home state of Florida? I never gave it a chance. Uh, what are the idiosyncrasies that make something like that work there that in a matter of less than a decade, you can have new train stations being built on overwhelmingly freight track, I would imagine, potentially connecting Miami and Fort Lauderdale to Orlando? How do you get the private sector uh, animal spirits flowing in something that has really been public-private for the longest time. Yeah, so uh, Brightline is a, a remarkable example. I just took a ride on their train a few weeks ago. It's in Florida, it's a private company. Uh, there have been public investments involved, but it's really the heavy lifting financially was, was private. 
And the quality of service there is something that you could, you know, if, if you were from Europe, you would recognize it as kind of good rail service. And they're seeking to do more and expand. Uh, and, uh, and we've worked with them in a number of ways. Now, they had some fairly unique qualities in terms of how they got the right of way that they have in Florida. But it can't be the only place in the country where you can have those creative solutions. And look, the, the only thing I like better than a great proposal for a federal grant to deliver great transportation services is a, a transportation service that isn't asking for federal money that can do a good job. So whenever that's possible, we, we of course welcome that. But I do not think we should ever expect transit or rail to, in general, be required to turn a profit because the returns on investment, the, the economic returns, which are massive, we're never set up to be captured by one company uh, in most contexts. Again, there are exceptions which are exciting to see what that can capitalize. But the point is that an entire society, an entire community is better off. Again, you look at Japan, the value that was created on the real estate around the places where this train ran is untold multiples, orders of magnitude beyond the cost of building it, which was not cheap. But that's where the returns are felt in our communities and our families and our economy and the jobs. So just because this isn't necessarily profitable for a company in, in various routes and various contexts doesn't mean it isn't something that the country will see a major return on if we make the right investments. But you get what you pay for. And for 40, 50 years as a country, we just decided or rather failed to decide to make the investments that you need. And I believe that that has not only cost us in terms of the degradation of our physical infrastructure, I think it's actually eroded something important in our democracy. And the reason I say that is because part of the social and political trust that makes us willing to participate in a democracy, to live by these rules where we all send people into office and they make decisions and love them or hate them, we all have to live by them. Part of what makes any of that equation work is results. You need to get results. And by the way, systems that are competing with democracy have argued that the reason to go their way and not commit to democracy is that they supposedly can better deliver on the basics. I don't think it's an accident that the last time it was accepted in some circles in America, even fashionable in some circles in America, to speak approvingly of fascism, it was the 20s, 30s, and 40s, the excuse that was made for Mussolini's regime in Italy was that it made the trains run on time. There's a whole separate hour to be spent on the fact that that's not true, that the trains did not run out, uh, mostly, uh, although it is true that that regime undertook a lot of major public works. But that was the idea, right? And you say, look, you don't have as much freedom there, but like stuff works. And one of the reasons why almost every other time I was in a room with President Biden that first year when we were trying to get the infrastructure bill done, and somebody mentioned infrastructure, the next thing he would do is talk about Xi Jinping, is that it was very much on his mind that this different model that China is putting forward, this more authoritarian model, is trying, among other things, to compete based on the supposition that they supposedly can better deliver on basic things like transportation. We need to continue to make sure that we demonstrate that it is democracy that can deliver not just the most freedoms, but also the best results. Full disclosure, stay with us. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and all fine podcatchers, including and especially Apple Podcasts. The link, please subscribe, is fulldradio.com. We are on Virginia Public Radio, WVTF, Radio IQ, across the great Commonwealth. You can catch us in Asheville, North Carolina on WPVM. We are out west in 
Ventura, California on KPPQ. Holler if you too would like us on your air. And another reminder that Steve Inskeep will be coming to Full Disclosure Live. Get your tickets January 31st, 2024 at the Robbins School. Steve Inskeep of NPR Morning Edition. His new book is on how Lincoln kept some measure of the country united. Please do join us. Follow on all social media at handle Full D Radio. If you are just joining us, we are live at the University of Richmond with Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg. There's not possibly enough time for me to geek out on all the transport things I want to talk about, but let's even shift it hesitatingly to automobiles. I also think of you and I, you know the, the Newman-Seinfeld moments where they go, Newman! You know, I have those when I see these ginormous pickup trucks. The fit-up on them, like you could fit three Ford F-150s from 1991 into kind of a current one. You have to be mindful of the safety of these things versus, uh, you know, a, a small hybrid or a sedan. I think the bloat in them has just gotten enormous, to say nothing of the SUVs. And these are profit centers for Detroit. They still, even if they're talking about the EV future, they're shipping out ever larger SUVs and pickup trucks. What kind of role, if any, is, has DOT played in maybe curtailing this? Well, we're about safety. So... I don't think we have a, a function in figuring out for you and your family what size vehicle you need. Some people really need a big truck. Some people don't. I don't think it's our place as a federal government to, to be telling you the answer to that question. But I do think it's very much our role and our responsibility to look after vehicle safety. And we've inherited a framework where vehicle safety means how safe are you if you're inside the vehicle? Is the vehicle designed in a way that protects the passenger? Is the vehicle set up in a way that, that alerts the driver to things? All of which, of course, is very important. All of which we test with crash test dummies and assess with five-star safety ratings and do a whole lot, uh, going back all the way to things like the fights over policies to require seatbelts, which now sound quaint, but were fierce political fights. But that was the framework. Vehicle safety means are you safe if you're inside the vehicle? So now we're in a crisis of roadway safety. About 40,000 people a year die on American roads. And while we seem to finally be showing early evidence of having turned the tide, it's an unacceptably high number. And it went up quite a bit in recent years. And that rise was driven largely by pedestrian and cyclist deaths. And what that tells us, what that tells me, is that if we're worried about safety, it's not just how the design or operation of a vehicle affects the safety of the people in the vehicle, it also has something to do with the design uh, when we're worried about the safety of people outside the vehicle. This is a paradigm shift for the way the Department of Transportation has, has worked on these things for the most part. But it is why, for example, we are beginning to include those considerations in what's called our NCAP, our new car assessment program that yields things like those five-star ratings. It's why we've begun the process of a rule on automatic emergency braking, not just to stop you from hitting a car in front of you, but to stop you from hitting a kid in front of you. And I think that needs to be taken more and more seriously if we are going to succeed in reversing the rise of roadway deaths. I'll pause there. I could go on. Okay, I'll go on. Um, <laughs> now, this is, we also need to get really serious about technology. And face the fact that while we are all rightly cautious and nervous about automated vehicles and automated driving, 
And we've seen some strange, sometimes comical, sometimes tragic stories about what some of these early AVs and their early deployment are doing. We need to remember that the backdrop of all of this is that human drivers have a murderous track record. And so as safety evolves from things we have now that are what we call ADAS, Advanced Driver Assistance Systems, the thing that dings to tell you you're getting too close to the car in front of you, the thing that nudges you back into your lane if you're drifting out of it. As that gets more and more developed towards something that could actually take over, which by the way, I want to make very clear, despite any marketing claims you may see or things you might see on Instagram or wherever, any car you can buy right now, you are required to be actively driving it at all times, no matter how fancy the features are to help you do that. These are not driver replacement systems. They are driver assistance systems. You are responsible for driving your car safely. But these systems are evolving. What's at stake in getting this right is not just stopping the technology from doing more harm than good, which is very important, as is the case anytime we regulate a technology to make sure it's safe, but also realizing the potential, which is a world in which roadway deaths seem as antique and exotic as deaths from tuberculosis and dysentery and cholera do in, in the developed world. I have to shift as much as I want to have three hours to talk to you. Um, EVs, range anxiety. Uh, in the interest of full disclosure, I have a 2012 Camry hybrid with 110,000 miles on it. And I'm loath, even though it needs a refresh, even though my brother has a Tesla, I don't want to give up the 600-mile combined range. And I don't know, nobody really needs that, but it's nice to never really have to go to the gas station. And what I'm seeing now from everything that's offered out there, whether it's the big three, it could be a Toyota vehicle, a Subaru, an Audi, uh, Tesla, obviously, is range that maybe in real-world application gets you to 300 miles. Is this a chicken or egg problem? Is this an overrated problem? Do you think that this is solved with better range in vehicles, maybe different batteries? or maybe having a plug at every half mile or something like that. I always try to get my head around this. And what's going what's gonna to cause that great unlock moment, like the way everybody switched to smartphones in 2007 to 2010? I know it's not yep. absolutely analogous, but... Yeah, that's a great question. Although I should start by noting that even though we think it's important to have good, strong, and swift adoption of EVs, we're not looking for an overnight unlock moment. The country actually isn't ready for it. The grid isn't ready for it. Our goal is not to have everybody in an EV tomorrow. The stated goal is by the end of this decade to be about half and half in terms of new sales, which by the way is very aggressive, but that's also what we think we can absorb in terms of having the charging network and the grid and everything else ready. But the great news is the more people choose to do that and are able to afford to do it, the more they will not only be driving a greener vehicle, but will be capturing the gas and diesel savings that come from fueling your, your car with electricity rather than gas or diesel. Okay, so first of all, let's remember how early we are in the life of EVs. If, if you try to relate it to the, the combustion engine, it's not 1905, but it's like maybe 1915, right, in terms of how advanced we are relative to where it's going to be. So range will increase as battery technology improves. But there is also probably a, a real gap, and I think your question gets at this, between the range that most of us need and the range that most of us think we need. And that gap causes people to spend more money than they might need to, to purchase more range than they need to, because the biggest driver of the cost is the physical battery that, that, that is bigger and heavier, the more range you need out of it. And I think part of that is 
can only be resolved through experience and people getting used to it. So, you know, most EVs now on the market, uh, 200, maybe 300, maybe 400 mile range or somewhere in that territory. And very, very few people routinely drive more than a fraction of that any given day. So what we got to make sure is that, first of all, people are comfortable, especially if you have a single family home or a detached garage where there's nothing mystical about charging infrastructure. It's the plug in your wall. If it's a multifamily dwelling, that's more complicated, which is why we're subsidizing chargers for hard to charge areas. But then when you go out on the road, you'll probably be able to get back to where you're going without having to think about charging. But we want to make sure that if you do, then there's a charger where you need it. We're requiring for the funding that we're putting out to the states to put in more chargers at least every 50 miles, even in really isolated open areas. You know that there's going to be a charger. In the same way that when you're getting ready to go on a road trip, there's lots of things you might be thinking about, but whether a gas station exists between you and the end of the range of your gas car is not one of the things you worry about. You're right. pretty sure that's going to be there. We have to get there for EVs, and we will. Why aren't the gas stations agnostic about putting up a charger? I mean, you're selling you know, kilojoules or something instead of this. You're getting people to come into the convenience store. It sounds like a McKinsey question. It's because it turns out, yeah, this is a great question. So it would actually be a mistake, even though it's a very natural thing to do, to think about charging a car as pretty much the same as filling up a car. It actually has more in common with charging your phone than it does filling up your car, which makes it easier and harder. It makes it easier in certain ways. For example, very few of us fuel, our, I'm guessing none of us, fuel our car at home. That's not an option, right, if it's a gas car. Like you can't, you don't have a pump at home, uh, nor would you want one. Um, or for that matter, for most people at work. Whereas with an EV, if you've got a garage or a single family home, it's the easiest thing in the world. And we're working to make sure it's, it's easy for apartments and multifamily buildings as well. And more and more workplaces have charging. So in that sense, it's easier. On the other hand, it's harder because it takes longer. You fill up, you go in, you get, your, you get your bag of chips, maybe, use the bathroom, you're out of there. If even a fast charge is more like 20 or 30 minutes, that requires a whole different business model in terms of whatever business ought to be, set, if any, ought to be set up next to the charger. This is an issue that can be solved. And I think businesses are figuring out how to adapt. But it means you can't just one for one swap out where you had a gas pump, you throw in a charger, you put them side by side and expect that to work because it really is a different experience in ways that are both better and worse from a customer experience perspective. I want to take this to you. I go back to these photos of this essay contest in 2000. It was the Profiles and Courage Award, right, with the Kennedy Foundation. And you wrote about Bernie Sanders, who was then, you know, fiercely independent representative. 20 years after that, you're both on the brink of becoming president of the United States. I remember the 2020 primary. Life comes at you fast, and I'm wondering what that experience, what that symmetry was like. You know, it's funny, one time at the end of a debate, Bernie came up to me and said, uh, uh, as only Bernie can do, you want to go back and read that essay you wrote in high school, Pete? <laughs> Um, I occasionally indulge in the daydream of imagining my some younger self catapulted into this moment, looking around, trying to piece together what had happened. And I wonder what that 18-year-old high school student who wrote an essay for a Profile and Courage essay competition about a member of the house who I wrote about because I felt, whether you agree with him or not on everything, the idea of somebody who said exactly what he was and who he was 
and didn't care about the political consequences and didn't care, <laughs> as it looked in 1999, didn't care that that meant he would never go further in politics into being a member of the House, mm -hmm. right? And was still able to get things done. That, that, that was something I really respected. And by the way, still do. I mean, all, all the things that motivated me to, uh, to write about him then, even though I competed with him because I had different ideas about what the top of our ticket should, should do, uh, you know, I still feel that way. But it is obviously head spinning to find yourself on a stage competing for the presidency with somebody you were writing an essay about when you were in high school, which let's face it, wasn't that long ago. And it is an example of what life can throw at you and also what's possible in, in, this, in this country and in this life. Hold that concept possibility because it was the same thing on my mind when I saw you reciprocate with sign language to a supporter, a young supporter. And I see you go on Fox News confidently with not many Democrats or young Democrats do. And I see you go on Charlemagne the God right, confidently. Like, how many people do that? And I always had this question. There's like one question, if I'm sitting next to Mayor Pete at a wedding or a bar mitzvah, where did it start? What was the inception of your, and I know it's going to sound hokey to some people, but it's a through line of this show. When did you believe that you could, that just go for it? Go for it, like run for president or? Everything you've done over 20 years. I mean, I want you to unpack that for us. You, you know, not a lot of people throw themselves into Fox News. Here, Sean Hannity, I'll, I'll answer all the questions you have. You know, you're, you seem just as comfortable on The Late Show. You, you do all of these things. At some point, was there a person? Was there a mentor? Was there an inflection point that said, you know, you're different, but you're going to go full speed ahead. You'll get the things you want. It's about execution. It's about, I don't know, you tell me. Well, yeah, there's definitely a lot of people. I mean, I'm moved that you, you acknowledged your, your Spanish teacher who had a big effect on, on your path. And I had a number of teachers who believed in me, maybe believed in me more than I believed in myself. I was lucky to have parents who were the same way, had high expectations and, and believed in me. I, for most of, at least most of the way through high school, wanted to be an airline pilot, which, by the way, is, is still a great career. And we're looking for more people to enter that career. <laughs> You student undergraduates thinking about interesting uh, turns you might take. And then learned some things about my eyesight that ruled out military aviation training and, and for a bunch of other reasons just wound up not on that path. I didn't, I think, grow up thinking I would run for office. Uh, I, I, we were a very politically conscious family. In South Bend? Yeah. The, the news was always on. My dad was always yelling at the TV about some what <laughs> Ronald Reagan was doing or something. But we were not a politically connected family. I don't even remember the first time I would have met an elected official uh, until I was a student, actually. Or I guess when I won that essay contest and I got to go to the JFK library and there were senators there. It was, it was really head spinning. But I also had the experience that I think so many of us do in different ways where you try something and you see what happens and you get somewhere and then you try a little more. And whether it's been learning a language or an instrument or learning a sport, that has really propelled me when it's gone well. And it turns out running for office is kind of like that, especially if you are politically aware. If you're like my dad was, and, and you're always kind of yelling at the TV, like, what are you doing? Or, or you see the person you agree with on TV, and you're like, I'm with you, but I would have said it differently. A lot of us have that experience, right? You sit at home, you watch something, you're like, man, if I was on that show, making the case for this or against this, here's how I would say it. And the amazing thing about my job or my path or my life is that I actually get to do that. I bet if, if you're left of center, 
I bet just about everybody here has imagined what you would say if you were on Fox News and they came at you with one of these crazy questions. Like, I actually get to do that. So in a way, it's very natural. It's just taking the, it's taking the same things that you mutter to yourself in the shower when you're getting ready for the day or when you're driving and you hear something on the radio uh, and you just actually get to do it. Full disclosure, please do stay with us. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts. The link is fulldradio.com. You can follow on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at handle Full D Radio. And a shout out to our listeners on WVTF Radio IQ, Virginia's NPR news station. You can DM me to carry Full Disclosure on your air. South Bend, turn of the century, going to pack your bags and head east for Harvard. You had no aspiration of becoming mayor of South Bend. It wasn't even on the radar. You know, I grew up First of all, if, if you're not familiar with South Bend, if all you know about it is that the University of Notre Dame is there, you might assume it, it was a comfortable, prosperous, tidy, racially homogenous, well-off college town. It's not. We were a company town for Studebaker. For Studebaker. That Studebaker, yeah. 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 Um, which was as big as the big three are now in its day. Collapsed in 1963. I grew up not even knowing that it wasn't normal to drive by acres and acres of crumbling factories on your way to school. And the message, I don't know anybody said it in these words, but the message I absorbed growing up was, get out. If you want to make something of yourself, if you want to succeed, get out. Which is what I did. I went to Harvard, went to the East Coast, went to where the action was. And as soon as I got there, I began to realize the extent to which I was actually from somewhere. You realize that when you, even a place that you're in a lot of tension with, I imagine most students here have had this experience where there may have been a, a number of things that made you not totally fit in where you're from, which is part of why you may have chosen to go to school somewhere different from where you're from. And the moment you get there, you begin to notice certain things actually about where you're from that you carried with you that make you not totally fit in in the new place that you've arrived in. And navigating that tension, among other things, gives you something to offer when, if and when you do choose to go back to where you're from. And one thing I'm really... One thing I really admire about a lot of people in my generation is people who chose to go back to places that were unglamorous and often struggling and, and, and make themselves useful there, make a difference there. And that's what I got to do in South Bend. So no, I, I, I never imagined. Even once I was thinking I might want to run for office, which I was by the time I was a student, I was thinking about foreign affairs and big national and international things. It took me longer to realize that I would find so much more meaning and opportunity closer to home, working on local things that I hadn't really paid as much attention to as, as a high schooler or, or as a college student. Cambridge was not the place to come out, though. I was, I, I mean, in a certain way, it's probably a, maybe a better place to come out than Indiana. But, um, <laughs> but having grown up in Indiana, I was so deep in the closet that I wasn't even ready to come out to myself when I was an undergraduate, or for that matter, a graduate student. I was a long way from that. And then when I finally got that far, which took a long time. Matter of fact, I remember the first time I told a friend, uh, which is kind of my way of cementing that I had come out to myself, was to tell that first other person. Kind of patted me on the shoulder and said, you didn't really make it easy on yourself with your career choices, because by then I had two careers. One was public service in Indiana, and the other was as a military officer in the reserve, where it was, when I signed up, the policy of my country to fire me if it came to light that I was gay. So obviously these conditions also not conducive to coming out of the closet. What changed all of that 
what put me over the edge was actually my military career because uh, I got I got activated. I went to Afghanistan. I served there while I was mayor. I did in the Naval Reserve. Reserve. Yeah, Naval Reserve uh, sent me to Afghanistan, landlocked country, but <laughs> these things happen in the American military. Um, and I did something that that you are told to do when 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 you deploy, which is to write a letter to be opened just in case. I still have it. It still says just in case on the outside. And as I'm sitting down to write that letter, I'm thinking, I'm getting ready to serve in a war. I'm an adult. I'm a homeowner. I'm the mayor of my hometown. And I have no idea what it's like to be in love. And if I come back, I can't let that continue. And so when I came back, I knew it was a matter of time. Uncomfortably, it was an election year for me. Um, <laughs> but I just knew it was time. And, and so I did. And everything changed because uh, then I could date. And then I met Chaston, and then everything really changed. I read somewhere that you described yourself as kind of a glorified Uber driver in Afghanistan. Yeah, yeah, we call And him. I can't imagine, I'm thinking of the Osarian in Catch-22 with the sorties and fearing for your life and PTSD. Is there any way you can give us a window into that experience and also how you bucked up and went there to begin with? Yeah. Um, first of all, I don't want to make it out like I, I was not, you know, a Navy SEAL. I did one deployment. There, there are people I was with who served five, six, seven deployments. Uh, so I don't want to exaggerate my contributions. But yeah, it, it turned out that there is an intelligence analyst, but it turned out what they really needed, what my unit really needed more often than not was a driver because there were restrictions on who could drive. You had to be trained and qualified on a long gun, uh, so a, a, a rifle and not just a pistol, in order to go outside the wire. And there needed to be two long guns per vehicle. Anyway, all of which is to say there a lot of situations where I needed to be available to drive either my commander or uh, other people in my unit or gear, either around Kabul, outside the wire, or between Kabul and Bagram, which was a dangerous road. One time I needed somebody to come with me, and he was one of these more grizzled types who'd, who'd been there many times and uh, volunteered to, to drive with me and chose to point out along the way the different places where IEDs had killed people that he knew. And uh, it's, it's your job, so you do it. And you're glad that you, every time you come back, you're, you're just glad for it. I, I think I went outside the wire roughly 100 times. Again, I do not want to make it sound like I was kicking down doors in, in Kandahar. I was driving a Toyota Land Cruiser, but you know, not everybody who did that made it. And so coming back and trying to make sense, in fact, the day I left, somebody doing that didn't make it. So you come back home trying to make sense of why somebody makes it and somebody else doesn't. And of course, there's no good answer to that. And so the best way you make sense of it is to say, well, I, I did make it, so I better do everything I can to have the kind of life and, and live in the kind of country that's worthy of what it took to protect that country. At least that's how I make sense of it. And I'm fast forwarding in a way that in the blink of an eye later, you're winning the Iowa primary in 2020, just as a kind of a once in a generation pandemic is about to take over the world. Yeah. I mean, this is how I, I kind of look at this episodically. I know life you might not look back at these things and say, oh. oh. No, and again, to, to return you to that daydream, I'm, I mean, I try to imagine what it would be like if a, like a 20-year-old a me was like by some sci-fi maneuver catapulted into, uh, you know, I don't know, on, onto a, a debate stage. 
where I'm surrounded by everybody from, you know, then Vice President Biden to Bernie Sanders, and we're getting questions about this. Uh, I think it came up in a debate. I hope I'm not conflating this. But anyway, the, the, the issue of the coronavirus was beginning to, to be discussed and just wondering what, what just happened. But that's, that's how the world works, right? That's how events happen. And, and yeah, not that much time separates the year 2014 when I was driving that up-armored land cruiser up the highway from Kabul to Bagram to when I was uh, at the Iowa caucuses. Now, of course, the problem with how I won the Iowa caucuses was nobody knew that I won the Iowa caucuses until about <laughs> two or three weeks later. And the whole idea is the night that you win, you get to take the momentum with you into New Hampshire. And then, but didn't Bill Clinton, Artley, you know, the comeback kid, isn't there just a way of spinning it? I tried. <laughs> it didn't work. Look, I, I came first, second, and third. I came in the top, top four finishes in the first four, but the problem was it was first, second, third, fourth in that order. And um, when that happens, that's how you know it's time to get out. And I did, and, and threw my weight behind uh, President Biden. And, and How did that happen? How did that, you and your, the person who you profiled at the turn of the century, out of this big catapult in, out of high school, everything happened so rapidly. The pandemic picks up speed. Suddenly Biden goes from being... Everybody said no chance to winning South Carolina, and it's all momentum, and everybody kind of fell in line. I don't understand how that happens. I guess, you know, everybody kind of left that candidacy for dead. And I know COVID was a once-in-a-lifetime type thing, and uh, the then-president's reaction to it kind of was once-in-a-lifetime. And what happened behind the scenes that the party realized, this is serious, we have to coalesce? I think, uh, to be honest, I'm, I'm not sure how much COVID we all saw very quickly how serious COVID was, but I think that the understanding of the need to coalesce was, was driven by other dynamics, understanding what was at stake. They always tell you it's the most important election ever, but we all certainly felt that that way. And I think we're reminded in various moments, especially by world events, you know, that my party's competitors were people who had strong disagreements with each other, but at the end of the day, were, were dramatically more aligned with each other than we were uh, with with the other side, and that if we really want to make the best case, we had to rally around the leader we believed in, which is what we did. And now, you know, one thing that's really gratifying now is to see how many of the things that various among us candidates, and you might remember, there were 20 who just qualified for the debates. There was a lot of candidates with a lot of ideas. And to see how many of those ideas have, many of which overlapped anyway, have become a reality. You know, Everything from ideas around volunteer service that I was proud of, that I see uh, rhymed with, with some of what the president's leading with the Climate Corps, to things in the infrastructure plan that we put out in my campaign, some of which are, are aligned with things that actually happened that President Biden got done. Just across so many issues, so many ideas that we were able, to, we've now been able to do. It. And, and it's all the more remarkable, I think, because it happened in a very divided country with a very narrowly divided Congress, which delivered some of these wins on a bipartisan basis, notably, of course, the infrastructure deal. People didn't think you could do anything on a bipartisan basis. And yet there we were, almost as November, it was almost exactly two years ago, with the president, with, by the way, a lot of us who were competing against each other back in 2019, 2020, uh, as, as he signed that bill. And to me, it's an example of exactly what we're shooting for when you come together and make common cause. You didn't take your momentum you know, from the great things that happened in the spring of 2020 and decide, okay, I'm going to drop out and go on Dancing with the Stars. You, um, I can't dance. That's the problem with that. <laughs> you knew that you had political capital, especially generationally. You know, the Mayor Pete hashtag. This is something where we've discussed before uniquely a handful of people in D.C., I would say, you, 
Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, they could go straight to a generation, straight to people. And you won that overwhelmingly then. I mean, how many transportation secretaries can anybody name? Um, you know, oftentimes there's a rock star state secretary or something. So to a certain extent, could you have picked really any direction on the cabinet? Because again, you've got foreign policy chops, you've got municipal chops. What was it about transportation that kind of sealed the deal for you? Well, one thing about transportation is it aligns with so many of the things that mayors spend a lot of time thinking about. Not just transportation per se, redoing our streets was, was one of the things that I worked on. One of the things I was proudest of was our city was honored by the U.S. Department of Transportation. Uh, actually, the room where I now do press briefings was a room where I got to be there as, as, as that award was given for some of our streetscape work. So parts of it were very familiar. Uh, of course, parts of it weren't. We, we do commercial space travel. We oversee the U.S. Merchant Marine Academy. These are not obviously not things that came up uh, when when I was mayor of South Bend, Indiana. But but there's a connection. There's a rhyme. And and one thing I find is that I'm often with mayors who are trying to get stuff done and relatively nonpartisan work who need a bit of a wind at their back. I wish when I was mayor there was a 1.2 trillion dollar infrastructure bill going on. Uh, very few things are more rewarding than than being able to be with local leaders and and mobilize those those kinds of federal resources that I wish we had when I was doing that job sure. to help them get it done. And it's true not just mayors but just communities. I was in a r small rural community that has an airport even though it's a tiny 2500 people. But therefore, it really matters because they use it for uh, flights to get people to a hospital when they need acute medical care. And their airport, their general aviation terminal, this is in Chamberlain, South Dakota, is a mobile home. I mean, it's been expanded and dressed up, but you can tell it was, it's, it was a double wide. And we got them the funding to, to get a permanent building there. And I saw these, you know, I met with these county leaders, these really practical and plain-spoken guys, some of whom were coming to the verge of tears because they cared so much about this and we were finally getting it done. Being able to do things like that is why I, I think the Secretary of Transportation is the best job in the federal government. Unbeknownst to most, you're now a resident of uh, Michigan. Yes. And not everyone stays for life at the Department of Transportation. What might be the plans? I mean, school board, mayor of Lansing, I don't know if you can <laughs> indulge us. I don't know if there's a gubernatorial or a U.S. Senate opening. The thing that's so beautiful and so frustrating about this interview for people to share is that in a parallel life, I could have made this entire interview about foreign policy. You know, this is one of those things where a secretary's been abroad. He's well-read on this. He speaks seven languages, partially wholly. But we have to stick to this lane because he is transportation secretary. You're not even 42. I believe you turn 42 next month. You have all sorts of options. What can you tell us? What are you allowed to tell us? <laughs> this is full disclosure. Right. <laughs> well, in full disclosure, the honest answer is I don't know. I know that I have this incredibly rewarding and incredibly demanding job. And I never take lightly that the President of the United States has trusted me and expects me to do a good job overseeing everything from the safety of our transportation systems to the future of our built infrastructure. And that is more than enough to take more than 100% of, of my capabilities for as long as I get to do it. And I don't know what's next. I know that every time I've wound up in really any job, certainly in, in public office, it's, it's been something that would have been a surprise to me a year or two before I was doing it. Just one wild card, there's a new speaker of the house, kind of barely, and maybe hanging on for dear life. <laughs> and there were some interesting comments in the past. Like, Do we have I, to? 
I don't know how to think. It's like, I, you know, the, the CEO of Apple, the world's largest corporation, is out and open about it. Several Fortune 500 people. You know, you go to university, this stuff ceases to be an issue at a certain point. But I, I want to know what's going on in your head that if you're called to testify before the House, the speaker is kind of on the record as having a homophobic statement history. Has any of that been sussed out behind the scenes? Has any of that been, I mean, it's, is it just, it is what it is. It is you what it is. You have to deal with all sorts of people. It's not great. I mean, <laughs> Washington has already, I've, I've found, been a place where there are lots of wonderful people, but they're also the kind of people who will ask you about your kids over breakfast and then go to the floor of the house and vote against your right to be married. And the thing that I think has taken a lot of Americans aback about the speaker is that you know, he holds these views and is not some random member of the House. He's the speaker of the House. He's the leader of the House. And not, this is not the model Congress of a high school organization. This is the actual Congress that makes actual laws that all of us have to live by. And it is led by somebody who in 2023 still doesn't think that somebody like me ought to be able to be married. By the way, from what I can tell, also doesn't think straight people should be able to get divorced. Doesn't believe in access to birth control. I mean, people can have whatever personal or religious beliefs they have, but this was set up to be a country where nobody has to live based on some other guy's interpretation of his own religion. That's like a really big part of how this country got started. And at risk of sounding like I got a one-track mind, um, really concerned about the votes that Speaker Johnson and his caucus have taken that would undermine the expansion of air traffic control and the ability to modernize ATC technology and undercut the funding that we're doing for port infrastructure development and reduce the funding for a program that we're using to make freight railroad lines safer. So I, I wish that we could have a little more focus on building up and improving our transportation systems and a little less focus on other people's personal lives. I'm going to put you on the spot. Having gone through the full disclosure ringer, you can finally exhale now. This is not by far the hottest seat that you've ever been on, but who should be on this show? Who should be on this show bigly, live, like this? The first fan letter, probably the only fan letter I've ever written, was to the oceanographer Robert Ballard of the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute who discovered the Titanic. And he wrote back, uh, which meant a lot to me because I was five. And I had sent him drawings that I think I'm pretty sure are in crayon of, you know, a ship that really wouldn't sink. I had a very great design in mind. Um, and he wrote back. It was the most incredible thing. And um, he was always kind of a hero. And by some chance, I don't even know what it was, but I, I got to meet him this year. He was in Washington for an Explorers conference. Do you know that's a thing that happens? Explorers get together and talk about Explorer stuff, I guess. I don't know. It's, 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 it's the kind of thing that a five-year-old thinks must happen. And a 41-year-old probably assumes doesn't happen. Yeah. And does, in fact, happen, which is marvelous. And he's... Uh, Sounds like a Wes Anderson movie. 
Yeah. And, and they get together, and I, I don't know, I didn't get to go to the conference, but I got to, to sit with, with this, this person who's, who's a, a childhood hero, and he described some remarkable things about the Titanic mission that, that only have recently come to light uh, because there was a classified element to that, that that I think is only recently something he's able to talk about. And all the other things that are not the Titanic that he did that, that are incredibly interesting. So, you know, it's your show, not mine. But if it was, if it was me, he'd be pretty high on my list. Secretary Pete Buttigieg, thank you. Disclosure, endless thanks to Miguel Quinones, our spiritual advisor, our champion, Dean of the Robbins School, and his extraordinary director of special events, Andy Miner. She's practically the CEO of Full Disclosure. I cannot thank her enough. So grateful for you, grateful to the crew at the Maudlin Center, University Communications, the President's Office, our producers, Kim Zaninovich, Case, Claire, Jason, Charles, Hannah, Natterly. We are shovel ready securely fastened in the upright position, 10,000 miles to a charge, and now with extra legroom for an extra 100 bucks. I'm Robin Farzad, back with you next week. Are you taking a selfie?